You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Happy New Year. We're going to run this one early in 2022. So welcome to the new year. Welcome back to Strong Towns. I have as a guest today, a fellow named Tim Sorens. I've been immersed in his books. I've read last year, The New Parish, How Neighborhood Churches Are Transforming Mission, Discipleship, and Community. And I also read Everywhere you look, discovering the church right where you are. I actually gave that one to my priest and I'm waiting to hear back from him. Tim stopped in our office this last summer. We, I think we're going to talk for half an hour and wound up chatting for two. That's just the kind of guy he is. Tim, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I want to start this because I know we've got a lot of secular people in our audience, not non-Christian, non-church people. I want to assure them we're not going to we're not going to Jesus preach to them today. We're going to talk about community and stuff. Can you maybe draw just to start out with I think a distinction between the part of the church that is focused on fixing yourself and and maybe this is a deep question to start out with how, how that relates to this idea of maybe fixing the community. How how those two relate? First of all, it is such a an honor to be here. I love strong towns and <laughs> I promise no preaching, none. No, we're good. But the church kind of capital C church within the Christian tradition, I'm forgetting who exactly said this, but there's a fascinating quote that said that essentially the church is the only kind of member organization that is supposed to be dedicated to the well-being of its non-members. That actually, I think is an interesting starting place to where at at our best, speaking kind of on the inside of that team, our life, our communal life, our imagination, our focus is actually supposed to be right at the intersection of loving our actual neighbors. That's loving God, loving neighbors. That's the big story. And you can't love a neighbor without loving a neighborhood. And you can't love a neighborhood without becoming immersed and learning how to heal the entire ecology of relationships within that place. So, no, you don't typically hear church people talk about public transportation and walkability and bike lanes, but it's impossible to love a neighborhood, honestly, without that, particularly when most development has been oriented around the automobile for the better part of a you know half century. So and we could go into all kinds of directions there, but at our best, we're a team that is like to use, this is maybe the only theological I'll try and use, we're trying to join in the kind of dreams of God to restore and renew everything. And because we're limited people, we got to do that from neighborhood to neighborhood. I want to, not as a way to create the negative, but I want to expand on that with kind of the, the, the anchor of the mega church on one side. I do think that a lot of people who are not involved in any religion will maybe look at at Christianity and and have the personification of that be the the mega church today the the big you know rock star preacher who's out there with tens of thousands of people and that's not the experience that you 
have. That's not the experience that I have, but I think we've both been adjacent to that and seen that. I'm Catholic, so there's a little bit of that around the Pope at times, right? Talk a little bit about that as a starting point, maybe, of disconnect. And I'd, I'd like to draw this conversation in then to the, the analog to that of the neighborhood church. For uh, a good part of the Christian community, especially over the last, say, 30, 40 years, there has been a significant movement where the big story is essentially how many people can you get into your building, usually on a Sunday, and mostly without meaning to, and there's often good intentions around this, large, big churches can create really excellent programming and really excellent you know, kids stuff. And, you know, some churches have like slides, you know, like big old, like they look like a mall without meaning to, they can kind of function as the dispensers of religious goods and services. And then they can essentially compete for the market share of attention of the faithful. Again, I would, I would almost always presume good intent on that to create spaces of belonging and community. And obviously like tell the story of the Gospels, etc. But as I'm sure lots of listeners are familiar, you know that old famous Marshall McLuhan quote that the medium is the message. Well, when you find yourself fundamentally a consumer of anything, that message can be really tricky to undo. So to get to the analog if a lot of the energy is to how do we get as many people as we can? How do we get their attention for our thing? Meaning like our church attendance or our programming or to build our building or whatever. The inverse of that, which I think is really quite subversive is it goes with the first quote I mentioned. And that is how do we identify and connect people at the neighborhood level to function as a team on behalf of the common good of that place. And so far more than, how do we create strategies for y'all to come to us and build our thing? Rather, how do we attend to what's already happening, the good work that's already happening, the associations, the thriving local businesses, the uh, concerned citizens, all the assets and gifts? And how do we function kind of like the, the fabric of care within that place on behalf of the common good? And that again, requires particular places because neighborhoods are so different. It also requires that we learn from neighborhood to neighborhood and city to city because literally trying to do that work and reweave a fabric of care within a given place, you're still going to have blind spots. And there's, of course, still going to be state and national massive issues that you need to attend to. The neighborhood church or friends who are figuring out how do we join in the common good of this place, I think that that is subversive, not just to some of the megachurch stories. I think it's subversive to a lot of the kind of consumerism that, you know, our society is baked in. I know that I said at the top, we weren't going to get preachy. I don't think that means we can't quote things and, and discuss some things. I want to get to the story of the parish collective, but first I want to dig into this because it there is a, a part of Christianity, you know, certainly since the Reformation, but, but maybe it goes back beyond that, this, uh, this kind of tension between, you know, what Catholics would say, faith and works. St. Paul says, you're saved by faith. You are known through your works. It does feel like uh, very much consistent with the sense of where America has maybe gotten in some ways that the, the Christian churches, 
have reacted to that as they have, I think, throughout American history. You know, we have this history of the the wandering preacher, you know, going across the country in search of souls and and all this. I think this is very natural, but it does seem today like American society is very disconnected, very online, very consumer driven, very almost pop culture ish. And when I see a lot of the the Protestant churches today that that are in that mega church variety. It seems very focused on your own personal self-actualization as like the end. And I I think the thing that has most interested me about you and about the Parish Collective and and about people who are working in, you know, concert with you and and other places who are picking up that theme is that there, there does seem to be a recognition while like that is part of the Christian experience. There's another part of the Christian experience that is you will know me through my works. And, and, and by that, I will be out living a certain life in the neighborhood. Can you say that better than I just said it? Can you, you know, take that and, and I think frame it in your way? I don't know if I can say it better, but it's a fun thing to play with. I mean, I'm totally with you, Chuck. For listeners, I don't know if they would agree with this, but a lot of sociologists would say that we are living right now at this moment in the most individualistic and consumeristic in the West, at least in much of Western countries, certainly the United States and Canada, the most individualistic culture that's ever existed. We are also wrapped up within an economy where our attention is perhaps the most valuable thing that any of us have. And if there is a civil religion of the day, I would say that that is self-actualization. I would say like the contemporary civil religion is essentially live your best life and do no harm, but live your best life. Basically, if your life looks amazing on Instagram, you've reached the pinnacle. Congratulations. Right. If your life can be as nice as you make it look. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. There's lots of problems with that, of course, but certainly from the Christian tradition, but I just think this is, I think this is true. We actually can't know ourselves outside of relationships. I mean, we are fundamentally social animals. We're social creatures. I don't buy the myth of kind of the sovereignty of the isolated self. I think that we are fundamentally social. And if that's true, then the task of reweaving strong trust in community neighborhood to neighborhood is fundamental to, yes, what it means to be a Christian, but arguably far more importantly, and certainly more inclusively, far more what it means to be human. I'm with you 100% on that. There's a lot of directions we could probably take that. but Yeah. I mean, I watch my own children growing up, teenage girls. I feel like that is that part of life when you're crossing over from the egocentric self, right? Like the world is about me and what I understand into, you know, the world is about others and, and my interaction with them. And that crossover is such a, a, an interesting phase because it's a, the first thing that happens is an awareness, right? An awareness that others are looking at me. So I'm worried about how I look and what I wear and like all these things. And, and you go through this like transition between egoism and, and something else. It often feels like today we are trying to trap ourselves into that transition, right? That, that, that hyper-focus on self. And I'll say this as a critique, not of society, not as like a Catholic looking at society, but as a Catholic looking at other Catholics, 
and maybe other Christians, that it seems like in a lot of ways our faith has adapted to that, or our practice has adapted to that, and kind of led with a, here's how you can become the best self-actualized version of you solely on your own, right? By like your totally. own, by your own practice, in a sense. Totally. I don't want to veer too much to where hopefully the audience is, but this is part of the fallout of the North American church, actually, because as uh, the broader, I'd say this is true in both Protestant and Catholic circles, as there's been kind of general decline of churches, meaning like through attendance, there is a understandable anxiety of like, oh my goodness, we need to do something. We need to fix it. Right. And out of that anxiety, the default tends to be, to ask church questions, basically, how do we fix our church? How do we become a cooler church? How do we get younger? How do we get young people? You know, all these kinds of questions that almost no one else cares about. And it's understandable in the same way that it's really understandable to say, I want to be whole. I want to be healthy. Um, Even I want to be happy. Ironically, that path doesn't usually take us where we need to go. Usually it's, we find that kind of a thing by pursuing something that's adjacent. So what in the parish collective with lots of churches are, are kind of increasingly asking, it's rather than like, how do we fix our churches? They're asking, how do we join in the common good of our neighborhood? And as we do that, that will show us what it means to be the church. But it's actually a different journey than saying, how do we fix ourselves? And I think that's actually true, frankly, with lots of sectors. We have to ask the question of, you know, what is our purpose? What do we exist for? And if it's for our own preservation, you know, what, is, what does the economy exist for? For more money? Well, no. no. <laughs> if that's true, and, you know, economists would tell you that is true, it's not a very big story. What does politics exist for? Just more power? Well, no, no. I mean, I would say no. So we have to wrestle through that. And, and, I think that does get us to some of the incredible work that Strong Towns has been lifting up for years and years and years is how do we wrestle through like human scale quality of life that's financially viable over the long haul? We have to wrestle with these big questions of why, of purpose. And we can't just take on the default of the latest trend because it's almost always short-sighted thinking that bites us in the end. What is the Polarish Collective and, and how did it get started? That's the bridge I want to use to explore that narrative is the, the work that you're doing. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory and, and, and where things stand? Sure. The Parish Collective is a network around mostly North America, but really around the world of place-based churches and small communities, community groups who are all wrestling with kind of the, the primary question of how do we be the church, not just go to the church in our neighborhoods. And so we love that word parish, which can have different kind of connotations in different circles, certainly between Catholic and Protestant and some different uh, Protestant traditions. But how we've begun to wrestle with that language is it is a geographic area that's large enough to live a lot of your life, kind of live, work, play, but small enough to be known as a character within the story of that place. My understanding of the word parish is that it descends from a Greek word that actually means to dwell aside. I've always thought of it as not like this abstract, here's the people who go to my church, but actually like a physical, here's the area that I commune with and inhabit with others. Exactly. 
the great emphasis is how do we begin to appropriately take holistic responsibility for that place? How do we literally heal and love this entire place? And uh, what does that look like? So that's the parish part of it. And as you mentioned, with some friends, we wrote a book called The New Parish because we feel like this idea of embodiment and embeddedment within in neighborhoods is really, really important, not just for the church right now, but for our broader society. And then the collective part is that we really need to be learning from each other. So it's basically, it's a network of, of place-based churches is the short answer. And how it got going is um, essentially about 11 or 12 years ago. Well, first of all, so even before all this, I think there were hundreds and thousands of us who were asking similar kinds of questions. I mean, typically movements happen when people who thought that they were alone discover they're not. Amen. Yeah. And so that's really the undercurrent. But out here in the West Coast, I'm in the Seattle area. My dear friend, Paul Sparks is in the Tacoma area. And I was uh, helping to start a new church in a neighborhood, actually where Amazon.com now is centrally located. So a lot of change there, as you can imagine. That was before they moved. And Paul was in... Tacoma, but very his his church community was very regional, and they were really wanting to wrestle through how do we kind of live our lives together in downtown in such a way that we could join in the common good in this place. First of all, when we met each other, we were just instant friends, and then we would get our kind of leadership teams together, and then really where the collective began is we started just uh, you could say organizing, but basically we just kept finding more opportunities to connect with more people, and not just you know pastors or uh, professionalized Christians, just everyday people who were saying, yeah, we're really trying to do this, but we don't feel a lot of support from our denomination or network. We don't quite know what we're doing. We feel kind of alone. We, f- we feel like this, this thing that we're doing, like, which was quite varied and diverse really matters a lot, but we're barely hanging on. And so we would just, I mean, it doesn't take too much of a genius to say, well, we we should connect, <laughs> you know, we should learn from each other. We should, we should get together. Uh, sometimes in the same place, we, Paul and I used to travel down to Portland, Oregon, and we'd just line up meeting after meeting after meeting and then drive back home. And we would just hear the same thing over and over. We're doing all this stuff. We really feel like it matters. We really feel like this is healing society and we're barely hanging on. And we'd be like, well, we're actually going to meet. You want to like come with us? Cause we're going to meet some people. They live two neighborhoods over. And that really was the impetus. And that was 10 years ago. And it's grown a lot since then, but that's, that's more or less the story. Talk about that scariness of barely hanging on. We've experienced this at strong towns. There's a certain approach that you take if you want to fix that hanging on problem that is, is kind of laid out in front of you for a nonprofit. It is find a major donor or two that really buy into what you're doing, find a foundation. But what we saw early on is that when you get sucked into that orb, it, it changes you. It changes who you are. It changes your focus. And it, it was a lot more difficult for us, at least in the short term, to focus on building membership and our membership needs and understanding where people were struggling to accomplish things and, and trying to be as helpful to that. I feel like there's a parallel with what you're working on and what the, the parishes and the parish collective are working on. How is this both the road less traveled, like the more difficult path, but also I, I think in the long run, like the easier path, right? Like the path to actually accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, kind of 
important versus urgent needs yeah. that people sometimes talk about. I absolutely feel like our our life together in the neighborhood or in in cities is going to be pretty much a neighborhood. In more in you know smaller towns, it might be the entire town. Uh, in suburbs, it might be the entire suburb. So it's not just don't think subdivision. Think of it broader of a kind of geographic area. The barely hanging on, a lot of that does come from the larger stories that are around us all all the time. I mean, we're definitely living in an age that is profoundly kind of disembodied and divided and polarized. And a lot of what's glamorized and seen as successful is, you know, national and often a niche issue. And so to focus on the ordinary and the small uh, over a long time, I mean, those two things, I think, are so powerful to focus on a particular place over a long time, decades, I think is about, if there, if I have, I shouldn't even price in this case, um, speak entirely for the parish collective, but for me, Tim Sorens, I would say a community of people who are focused on one particular place and the holistic renewal of it for a long time. And then they're able to be connected with others doing that. That essentially is the prescription for change that I would put my energy around. And the thing about both of those things is that they're very subversive. Focusing on a particular place is increasingly, I'd say, unusual. And certainly having an imagination for the things that we could do that will take years and decades is also, frankly, unusual. But there's extraordinary power in that intersection in time and place extraordinary power. In my neighborhood, I live in the South Park neighborhood in Seattle, and we've, my wife and I have now been here for seven years, and we're very involved with, you know, in a coffee shop and a little co-working space and community development corporation. And we're just now beginning to take on potentially massive kind of projects that I think could be truly newsworthy, but it's taken, you know, quite a bit of time. And of course, why? Because it sounds like a cliche, but you can't move faster than the speed of trust. You just can't. But once you have it, it is powerful, arguably more powerful than anything. I think I'm going to ask this question because I've been wrapped up the last couple of days with what is, I'll just say a stupid, a stupid debate over macroeconomic topics that are beyond my capacity to influence or, or even, you know, communicate. And I've been frustrated with myself because it feels like a major distraction from my life, but I found my brain like sucked into this. There's a certain, I've heard it discussed as like a sphere of, of care and a sphere of, of influence and the overlap of those two being a place where we should spend the, the bulk of our time. I don't know if you were the one who told me that or, or somebody else told me that, but there's a, there's a certain peace and fulfillment that comes with that, but also a certain let me just say the word power, a certain capacity that you build when you work in that. What advice would you give to people who find themselves very motivated by the latest debate in Washington, D.C., or the latest controversy emanating out of New York or Hollywood or what have you? And and how much cable news do you spend time watching versus that more mundane thing I guess I'd like to have you walk through the story of how you actually do have those modest things wind up to be the more significant aspects of, of, of building a place and, and making something successful. 
There are very real, particularly now, of course, there are real anxieties, real needs, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, demand our attention all the time. For listeners who are like, ugh, I don't know about this, like church stuff, I get that. But think about it from this perspective. If you could have a small team of people whose mission essentially was not their own thing, I bet the majority of listeners at one time or another have been a part of some kind of a civic meeting, a neighborhood association or something like that. You know, like you go around those meetings and everyone kind of does an introduction. You're like, I'm, I'm Chuck. I'm, you know, this is what I care about. And we're all kind of sizing each other up. Right. I mean, that's what, of course we do. And some people are maybe from the city and some people are from the chamber of commerce. And some people are just, they want to build a dog park. And this person cares a lot about homelessness. Everybody has their issue. Right. And that's part of the dance of democracy. It's a good thing. Imagine if increasingly there were people for whom they said, rather than, Hey, I'm Tim and I'm a part of this church or I'm a pastor or something like that. And then everybody in the room is like, oh, well, what is their angle? I guess they want to convert me or they want me to come to their church. I'm not quite sure. Frankly, <laughs> it's confusing. And so I'm going to keep going. But what if the essentially dominant narrative was, oh, those are the people who care about the whole and for a long time. And their job is actually not themselves. Their job is to figure out how we all fit together. Their job is to kind of discern how does the dog park connect with homelessness, connect with tax incentives and zoning. That's their job. Their job is to help us figure out how we can be the healthiest and most whole and most abundant place that we possibly can be. To use a, a language that I just love from my friend Diamon Hargis in Indianapolis, their job is to maximize public joy. If that happened over the long haul, I think that'd be absolutely incredible. But of course, that takes like I said earlier, quite a bit of, of trust. But with that long-term imagination, there's literally nothing I, I'd say that that couldn't eventually transpire. I mean, not not really. I mean, not with a long enough perspective. For Christian churches, for local churches, and I, I think this goes for any group that would organize at the local level. But we can we can focus on, you know, a Christian church because I I know that's where your greatest level of experience is, what are the obstacles to building trust? How do you screw that up? And how do you make it right? How do you make it work? Like, what would be the things you would say to guide a, a group at the local level that is interested in this trust building operation? Well, there's a thousand things that can screw it up and do. I mean, uh, this is not preaching. Some some listeners will have heard that saying from Jesus that we're supposed to forgive each other 70 times seven. My friend Paul kind of jokes about the fact that most of us are not in the same place long enough where that is even conceivably possible, you know, that we can conceivably like irritate each other that that much. Uh, we just move on. We move away. We, we give up. We drop out, you know, conflict and ego and all of these very human things and power battles and insecurities. I mean, all these very normal human things get in the way of building trust. And so to me, this is a, that's a big, big question, Chuck, but I would say that when there is some sense of common mission or kind of common vision, like we're all neighbors here. We all, we all hold this place in common. We want it to be the best possible place that we can that honestly, that covers a multitude of sins. And then we're going to try stuff and we're going to fail. And then I think the virtues of 
you know, humility and reconciliation and owning our own, you know, where we screw up and asking, literally asking for forgiveness. I mean, it's easy to look at something like the United States Congress and its own, say, kind of dysfunction or muddied interest. That it's an easy target. It's not that different than most neighborhood associations I've ever been a part of. You know, there's all these little turf battles and there's all these weird things that happen. And so I think what's required is is leadership to say, hey, this is possible. This this new world, this opportunity, this is possible. We can go down this path together. Let's make small incremental steps towards it. And that could be for big projects. That could be for very small things. It could be very social. Um, it could have more to do with justice and activism. But at the end of the day, I think it's a combination of how do we knit together a community that feels like we all belong here and we all want to contribute. We all acknowledge one another's assets and gifts. Fundamentally, I think it begins with how we see before we get to how we act. And that's a big deal. I want to follow that a little bit. I'm not asking you to do an advertisement for Strong Towns, but I, I do think it's it's interesting to pause right now because I, I think the people listening, if they've been here a while, know and recognize why you and I are talking and why what we're working on overlaps so much. But I, I want to give you a second to be able to just say how Strong Towns has helped you in doing this kind of work because it does feel like there's a ton of overlap here. We don't have a religious aspect to what we do. We're a nonprofit secular organization, but I, I am inspired by the way that you've taken our work and, and done something powerful with it. So can you just chat about that for a second? I'd love to. I mean, our mutual friend, John Patterson, who works for Strong Towns has like, he's always trying to figure out schemes how we can be working more together, which I'm <laughs> thrilled about. We've been talking a lot about what kind of parish does and churches and stuff like that, but we absolutely are dependent upon thought and leadership and networks and energy like Strong Towns. And Strong Towns is one of the best. I mean, just the type, just the name alone, Strong Towns, is a lot of what we've just been talking about. It is an abundant, or literally in this game, strong perspective of what is possible. It's not fundamentally cynical. It's not fundamentally uh, active, like saying game's over. It's this is possible. There is another way of building our neighborhoods and cities is possible. And frankly, there's a lot at stake if we don't. So it's not just like a, a cute little thing. There's a lot at stake if we don't build strong, resilient towns. And if we don't throw away millions and billions of dollars on stupid ideas, I would say the broader parish collective network is I bet this would be an interesting thing for us to do someday. I bet like kind of there's a good 60 to 70% Venn diagram yeah, between the overlap. general overlap of strong towns and parish collective. And they would um, not just get along really well and have a lot to learn from each other at the neighborhood level and at the even city level from neighborhood to neighborhood. Um, I think they, they need each other. I think there's an interdependence and that's true beyond with, you know, some other organizations as well. But the truth is, there's just not that many people and movements and resources who keep, you know, clanging the bell that a more local way of life is possible and frankly necessary. I mean, with the connections between, say, 
the big populations that happen to be a part of churches and do care about their neighborhoods and people that are, you know, whether they work for the city or they're, you know, architects, designers, developers, et cetera, that overlap is really, really important. I actually think that there is a growing become still largely hidden, but becoming much more visible kind of localist connected movement that we're a part of that I think strong towns has been nurturing and cultivating and building for quite some time. And that's why we're paying attention. That's why I'm a member and I want all your listeners to be members. Thank you. (laughs) There's a Pope Francis quote that I hope I can get through it. He says, I prefer a church, which is bruised, hurting and dirty because it's been out on the streets rather than a church, which is unhealthy for being confined and from clinging to its own security. And I'll say this as a Catholic, I I think that the Pope is excoriating us to do something different because a lot of the Catholic churches that I know and have been involved in are more interested in building parking lots than, than neighborhoods. They're more interested in, in the, the program that they've got going on than what's going on across the street from them. That's a critique I would make of my, of my own church. If I am in a community and I'm part of a parish and I'm inspired by this, or you know, if, if I'm uh, someone who wants to get connected to the parish collective, what, what are the steps that I should take? Where should I go? What should I do? What's the best place to plug into the work that you're doing? Well, that's pretty easy. They can just go to parishcollective.org. And there's a get connected button and they can tell us a little bit about themselves if they're a part of any kind of church community or there's various things that they're interested in. And we can be then resourcing them with stories and content and other connections. That's by far the easiest way. And then there's, we do learning communities and conferences and, and things like that. I mean, it's, the truth is for your listeners, um, and we've had fun kind of geeking out on this, Strong Towns and Parish Collective have a lot of overlap in um, their missions. They also have a lot in terms of their kind of business models and how they're trying to cultivate membership and attention towards a movement as opposed to just kind of an organization. And so, yeah, for folks that are listening, definitely sign up, get a hold of me. And there's colleagues all over the country that we could be connecting with. What if I am uh, Parish Collective curious and don't want to be evangelized or roped in or put to work building Christ's community on earth. I just want to, uh, to learn more. Do I have to pledge holy allegiance to, uh, to some, uh, some dogma if I want to website? Be- no, of course not. No. I mean, there's all, there's heaps and heaps of resources that are both are on the website and books and stuff like that. But I would say for the folks, the vast majority of listeners are like, you know, good for you. I'm glad that churches are doing something. That's great. Here's what I would ask of you. I would say, we need you as someone who is apart from the church and not interested in the church to push us into our purpose. If, you, if you've if been listening to this and you're like, well, well, gee, that'd be great if churches did that. We actually need you to push us. We need you to say, I thought, I thought this was like your big story. Like, how come you're not doing that? <laughs> Use that quote from, you know, Pope Francis and be like, I'm not a Christian or I've not, I haven't been to church in decades, but seems like loving God and loving neighbors is like your big thing. So seems like we could collaborate on something, right? I'm not sure if um, this is going to come before it. Like you said, I've written two books. One was more for church leaders and one was more for everyday people. And I'm, I'm thinking about, and I'll uh, be asking for your attention on this. 
I'm thinking about writing something, Chuck, that is actually oriented towards uh, people outside the church, because I think that we actually need them to push us into our own faithfulness. And I think that the church at its best is really, really good news for everybody. But I think we might need some help. I've been doing the Bible in a year podcast this year with, with uh, father Mike Schmitz. We're now towards the end of the year. We're, 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 you and me are chatting on December 17th and we've been going through acts of the apostles. And it's fascinating to me because in parallel, we're doing some of Paul's letters and what was the early church? The early church was going around and establishing small places of people who cared for each other and cared for the broader community and nurturing those places to like the next level of their own competence and capacity. It was not taking on Rome and uh, marching on the Capitol and demanding this reform or that reform. It was literally neighborhood by neighborhood trying to build places that were slightly better than what was there and, 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 and leave it in a better place. I, I feel like it's an inspiration for me. And I, I think that's part of why I'm drawn to you and the work you're doing is it, it feels very much like the authentic early church. Yeah, that is the dream. That really is the dream. And of course there's new challenges, but that's the hope. And I think, again, given some time, I think we could be shocked at the stories that we get to tell our, our kids and grandkids of what we, we get to be a part of. I think that's true. Tim Sorens, what, what is the best place for people to get a hold of you? I know you gave the website earlier, but is that the best place? I also have my own personal website, which is Tim Sorens, uh, S-O-E-R-E-N-S.com. I think a lot of folks actually would probably like the book, Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. It's kind of memoir-ish. I take some shots at myself. There it is. That's awfully sweet of it's you. It's a great book. Yes. Thank you. I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's very, I mean, this is, I hope you don't take this as an insult. I mean, as a compliment, it's a very easy read. Yeah, um, it was meant to be. Yeah, you, you, this is designed to be a very accessible book. And if you're interested in this topic, get the book because it is very accessible. And I think it will, it will help turn you into someone who looks at your neighborhood in a different way. Tim, thanks so much, man. Thank you, Chuck. What a, what a gift to be here. It's, uh, it is beautiful to talk to you. It is December 17th, so I'm going to say Merry Christmas to you. and Merry uh, Christmas to you <laughs> and to all the listeners. Well, no, they'll hear this later. Happy they'll New Year, this. everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. You take care. We'll talk again soon. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.